So let me tell you the genesis of this show. Something caught my eye. It was that in April, there will be a week-long international course conducted at the in the Vatican, by the Vatican, uh, at the Pontifical Athenaeum Regina Apostolorum. Uh, it's a course about exorcism. Uh, and... Well, that piqued my interest, and I uh, grabbed one of my producers, Josh Nalea, who would be the producer you would grab about this. Uh, it would take too long to explain why that is. I said, we need to find out more about this. So one of the things we found right away is that if, in fact, your mental picture of the idea of exorcism is that it's something that is done um, very, very infrequently and kind of a dwindling thing, not really uh, a creature of the 21st century, you couldn't be more wrong. In fact, um, the arc is going exactly the other way. The trend line is going up and by every measurable uh, index. Uh, more exorcisms are being done than ever. There are a lot of different reasons for that. We'll be exploring those today. Uh, but but take my word for it here at the beginning. Yes, there are more requests for exorcism. Uh, there are here in this country more people performing exorcisms, more uh, priests of the Catholic Church performing exorcism. Uh, and, and one of the reasons for it, uh, we'll get to it a little bit in the second segment, is that uh, the current Pope, Pope Francis, is someone who, for whom this is a very meaningful thing, and he's brought it up. He's even suggested that people who take confessions— uh, he hasn't suggested it. Popes don't suggest things. Uh, he has said that people who priests who take confessions shouldn't hesitate to turn to exorcists if they think that an exorcism might be needed. So that's a long-winded introduction. We have guests who know so much more about this uh, than I do. So we're going to start uh, talking to Dr. Francis Young, a historian specializing in the history uh, of religion and supernatural belief. He's the author of several books, including, relevantly, A History of Exorcism in Catholic Christianity. Um, also joining us uh, by phone is Father Vince Lampert, pastor of St. Malachi Parish in Brownsburg, Indiana, as well as priest and official exorcist uh, for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Um, and I'm going to begin, uh, Francis Young, uh, notwithstanding the title of your book, Exorcism, the notion of possession, the notion of casting out demons or spirits, is not an idea that lives exclusively within Roman Catholicism or greater Catholicism. Greater Catholicism. I mean, uh, some version of this seems to exist in just about every religious tradition that one could imagine, and, and at an anthropological level, too, dating maybe as far back as we can see. That's absolutely right. You can trace evidence of ritual exorcisms back to the Egyptians, back to the Babylonians, ancient Mesopotamia. And in fact, Christian exorcism in the way that we recognize it is very much derived from the earlier Jewish practices. So, no, it's certainly not exclusively Christian and it's not exclusively Catholic. But Catholic exorcism does have certain specific characteristics. Well, uh, that would maybe be a good segue to Father Vince Lampert. Um, so uh, tell us about some of those very specific characteristics that uh, Dr. Young is referring to. So in an exorcism, an exorcism is a prayer of the Church, whereby the person that's afflicted by evil, God is being asked to bring deliverance to the person who is afflicted, or in an exorcism, the demon itself is being commanded to depart. So it's a ritualized action within the Catholic Church. As the professor or the doctor mentioned there, the Catholic Church doesn't have a monopoly on the practice of exorcism by any means. 
but because it is one of our liturgical rites, there is a prescribed way that it is performed. Right. That is, uh, if not a monopoly, uh, one of the things that's fairly unique uh, for the Roman Catholic Church is that there's a right, an R-I-T-E. Uh, there are certain, certain notions of, um, of exorcism and a lot of other traditions. There are even indications uh, in, in, re- in research that more, in some subgroups, more Protestants believe, uh, particularly, for example, more Latino Protestants believe in possession and exorcism than do Latino Catholics. Uh, you find the same thing if you're looking at sort of uh, the event— not even the 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 more um, uh, renewal or oriented uh, Pentecostal uh, sex within Protestantism, uh, you'll find incredibly high percentages of people who believe in possession, who believe in exorcism. But as you're saying, uh, Father Lampert, the difference would probably be that the Catholic Church has a kind of specific, you could almost say, a specific playbook for dealing with this. Correct? Yes, absolutely. The original rite dated back to the year 1614, then it was uh, updated in 1998. The very last liturgical rite to be updated after the Second Vatican Council that ended in 1965, it came out in 1999, and then it was tweaked again in 04 and 05. And then just uh, earlier this year, the official English translation for use in the United States was put out by the Conference of Catholic Bishops. So, um, uh, well, actually, let's just go here. Most Americans of a certain age uh, have seen a lot of exorcisms, but they've seen them all on, in movies. Uh, they've seen, in particular, w- one movie, uh, although there really are a lot of exorcism and possession movies at this point, but they cert- the most common one, the one that most people know, is The, the Exorcist. Uh, it, uh, we'll hear a little clip from this. This is, you're going to hear Father Damien Karras, I believe, uh, played by Jason Miller, Father Lancaster Marin, that's Max von Sydow, uh, pl- performing an exorcism on Regan McNeil, played by Linda Blair. That the power of Christ compares you. He brought you low by his bloodstained cross. Do not despise my command because you know me to be a sinner. It is God himself who commands you. God the Son commands you. God the Holy Spirit commands you. The mystery of the cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. So, uh, Dr. Francis Young, that's probably most people's mental image uh, of what an exorcism uh, is like. Maybe the first question I would ask is, based on on your scholarship, um, how accurate would that be across the ages? Uh, Well, it depends which period you're looking at. I think when you look at the history of exorcism, the church has gone through phases where exorcism hasn't really been very important mm-hmm. and other phases when it's been really, really significant. I think the, the phase that I would point to when you did have a lot of dramatic exorcisms and in fact they would gather large audiences very much like exorcism movies do today was in the 17th century. Um, so you have uh, famous examples like the exorcisms of Loudun in France mm-hmm. where a whole convent of Ursuline nuns began becoming possessed uh, one after another, like dominoes. And that became an issue that went on for years and years. Visitors from all over Europe came to to watch, if you like. 
And uh, that was very much involved in the whole process of the Reformation, that the Catholic Church was trying to demonstrate that it alone had the power to deliver people from the devil uh, against the Protestant Church, which the Catholics said didn't have that power. And so it all became sort of bound up with propaganda. Uh, exorcisms of that kind in modern times are very rare. Uh, and in fact, the exorcist, the novel and the film, they are based on loosely on real events. Uh, which are, are said to have happened uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, and Washington, D.C. Um, but uh, yes, it's quite loosely based. And I think that the, the sort of the franchises that have sprang from that have tended to be quite sensational. Um, Father Vince, I'm sure you have some thoughts about this, too. Uh, popular culture depictions of this kind of thing tend to ramp up people's uh, expectations. Um, uh, so how wrong are those expectations? I think most people would be probably pretty much bored mm -hmm. by being an actual exorcism that's uh, performed today, because an exorcism at its core, again, is a prayer. Mm -hmm. So it's a prayer that's taking place. There are some manifestations that would occur. The manifestations are meant to be a distraction by the presence of evil trying to disrupt the prayer of the Church, or to even try to instill fear in those who are present by the different manifestations that are taking place. They may include, you know, eyes rolling in the back of the head, foaming at the mouth, growling and snarling, but anything to try to disrupt that prayer of the Church, whereby evil would try to gain the upper hand in the prayer that's being used to uh, defeat it. Um, Father Vince, there are thousands and thousands of Roman Catholic priests in the United States. There are only, I, I guess, about 85 people who do what you do. How do you wind up being one of those 85? How does one become an exorcist? When a uh, Catholic priest is ordained, he makes a promise of obedience to his bishop and to his successor. So in 2005, I was appointed by my bishop. So it wasn't a, a job that I went looking for, but it was one that the bishop uh, told me that he wanted me to do. And then after, shortly after that, I received training in Rome in the early part of 2006. And, and um, that training involved, based on on what I've read about you, I mean, first of all, watching another priest perform an exorcism. What was that like for you the first time you watched that? Well, it was kind of, uh, yeah, a little, I don't know, taken aback, just trying to come to grips with this particular ministry that for a while had really kind of fallen out of practice. Because even in 1972, prior to that year, every Catholic priest, as one of the minor orders of the Sacrament of Holy Orders, was uh, received the uh, the ministry of exorcist. But then that was taken away in, 2000, in 1972 by Pope Paul, and then it was reserved only to bishops, because every Catholic bishop is an exorcist by virtue of his Episcopal ordination. And then the Church says that his, at his discretion he can appoint a priest on a stable basis, so I'm one of those 85 appointed stably in the United States, but then a bishop could appoint any of his priests on an individual basis to perform an exorcism. Um, were you scared? I, I would be somewhat terrified, I think, maybe watching something like this for the first time. I don't know. Terrified might not be a good word. I mean, when you witness something, you can certainly be caught off guard and mm. maybe just general reactions kick in, you know, Somebody tries to lunge at you when there's a manifestation taking place, you know, kind of just natural instinct to, you know, to kind of protect yourself. Certainly that kicked in. 
when I was in Rome, I was able to participate in 40 exorcisms that the priest who was my mentor allowed me to sit in on. And then that gave me the opportunity to learn firsthand the church's ministry to those who were up against the forces of evil. And and when you perform an exorcism now, um, now you're the one, you're not watching anymore, you're the one doing it. I, I don't know, can you describe what, what kinds of thoughts and feelings run through you as you do something like this? I, I would say that after doing this for the past uh, 13 years now, I don't really pay any attention to the manifestations of evil. I really stay focused on the prayer of the Church. Because a lot of times people will, they're very interested in the manifestations, you know, what did you see, what did you witness? And over the years I've just disciplined myself really not to pay too much attention to that and to really focus on the power of God that is at work in this prayer of the Church, helping the person that's afflicted. Um, Dr. Uh, Young, we've sort of alluded to this already, but let's talk about it a little bit more. So codification of this uh, within Roman Catholicism uh, uh, happens in the early 17th century. My sense is that prior to that, it was something that lay people and communities did uh, in in late Middle Ages. Um, there were names for it uh, in, in continental Europe, different names in, obviously in Germany or France or, or Italy, but there was often, I guess, a person in town who, who handled this kind of thing. But but did, did they think that that was the same kind of thing that we think about now? In other words, did they think in a very Christian sense that they were dealing with a demon? Well, really, what happened in 1614 is that existing rites were just brought together in one single authorized official rite. There were plenty of rites before that, which varied from region to region. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there were essentially two approaches to exorcism. And one was similar to the approach that, that we have today in the Catholic Church, that uh, I suppose you could describe it as clerical exorcism or priestly exorcism, that you'd go to a priest or, or potentially somebody who was slightly more junior than a priest, like a deacon or somebody in, in minor clerical orders, and ask them to perform the exorcism. And the other approach was to call on the power of the saints and maybe go to a shrine and seek exorcism that way. Uh, there were also lay exorcists, as you've mentioned, uh, unofficial exorcists. But the church from a very early era clamped down on such people. Uh, and uh, uh, certainly in the 16th, 17th century, people who offered those kind of services in competition with the church were in danger in many regions of being accused of witchcraft. Uh, so it was a mixed picture, really. Um, some lay exorcists, but also priests performing it, and also people going to the shrines of the saints. In England, for example, in the Middle Ages, there wasn't any exorcism by priests. It just didn't happen. And so people used to go to the shrines of the saints. Hmm. So, Father Vince, if you had been um, a, a priest in the 17th century, uh, people's understanding of what you were doing and, and the environment in which you did it would be different. Today, in the 21st century, people have different ideas about what's happening. I, I don't know. Do you do you encounter you, you must encounter a fair amount of skepticism about this, not only among non-Catholics, but among Catholics? Oh, absolutely. Probably even among some fellow Catholic priests as well who might question all of this. I think the difference is, in the, uh, at least in the Western world here in the United States, maybe we, we don't readily accept spiritual realities. If somebody presents themselves as maybe dealing with extraordinary demonic activity, 
we might be quick to say that this is really something of a mental issue. And so, you know, people might begin to think, well, there's a, a medication or a prescription that one could take that will alleviate this problem. Although that is one of the differences as well. Uh, I think we talked about the, the kind of um, updating uh, that started, I think, in Vatican II, but it was ultimately announced by Pope John Paul II in 1999. And for the first time, I think you see in that um, uh, recodification of it a little bit, the, the acknowledgement that sometimes mental illness can be mistaken for possession, and I suppose vice versa, right? That's the position of the Catholic Church these days, is that you should try Absolutely. to figure out which thing. Even, even when the right came out there in, in 1999 in the introduction, it says that the priest, the exorcist, if he has any doubt, then he should consult an expert. And there's even a protocol here in the United States, because an exorcist is trained to be a skeptic. So I should be the last one to believe that somebody is actually dealing with the presence of the demonic. Every other possible explanation should be looked at first, whether it's the result of some type of mental uh, health issue or some type of medical issue. Um, uh, Dr. Francis Young, you've looked at um, the way that there have been waves uh, of um, interest in and and turning to um, exorcism uh, across history. Um, How do those waves work? What occasions uh, a renewal of interest in possession and exorcism? Well, what I've found is that when there's a sense that the church is under threat, maybe from the threat of heresy, from different competing denominations, Uh, when there's a sense that the church is under threat from competing ways of thinking, such as uh, during the period of the, uh, the, during the 20th century uh, and the 19th century. Um, I think that the key moments for me, uh, when there's been an upsurge of exorcism, uh, certainly in the early church, exorcism was was absolutely key to, to what the church did. It played a very important role, for example, in the rites of baptism, at the time when most of the people being baptized were still adults rather than children. And uh, then it returns in significance at the time when the Catholic Church is converting the pagans of Northern Europe. And so there's this renewed sense of a spiritual threat, an alternative way of thinking, pagan ways of thinking. And it returns again at the time of the Reformation. So during the Middle Ages, by and large, exorcism is not very significant in the church. Uh, contrary to what many people think. Many people refer to exorcism as a medieval practice, but actually it's not. It doesn't really have much of a place in the medieval church. But it comes back really in a major way in the uh, 16th, 17th centuries. Then the 18th century is a low point for exorcism, largely as a result of the the Enlightenment. But in the 19th century, it very much comes back in the late 19th century under the influence of Pope Leo XIII. And he felt that Freemasonry was a a satanic threat against the church and felt that, you know, various forms of of contemporary liberal thought were were a threat. And so that leads to a renewal of interest in exorcism that gradually builds and builds. And I would argue that our current situation in the Catholic Church really can be traced back to the 1880s, 1890s, and that sense of the church being under threat from modern secular thinking. Um, I, actually, uh, Father Vince, I, I know you have some thoughts about this. I was going to wait until the next segment to get to them, but maybe now uh, is a good time to talk about it. I mean, uh, there seems to be no doubt that exorcisms are on the rise and that the demand for help of this kind is on the rise. Um, the numbers that I've encountered are pretty startling. Um, uh, to what do you attribute that? 
I attribute that to just society today, the general decline in religious belief in God, the notion that faith in God leads us in one direction and the lack of faith leads us in another. I will say that, you know, the the rise in the number of requests for exorcisms, it's my experience that last year I received about 1,500 calls or emails from people across the United States who were seeking help. But by the time people call me, my experience has been that they've already self-diagnosed themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's not that the church is saying these people are possessed. The people themselves are saying they're possessed and they're seeking the help of the church. But then again, the church wants to follow a very methodical praxis, if you will, before we get to the point where we say that somebody is actually possessed. One of the things that people would be familiar with from popular culture, Father Vince, particularly these days, is the notion that not that a person is possessed, but that a place is inhabited. And this is particularly true. I mean, I'm sitting here in Connecticut where Ed and Lorraine Warren uh, had worked for so many years. Uh, They're now depicted in movies like The Conjuring. Um, First of all, uh, how closely does that adhere to a, a more traditional Roman Catholic understanding of what can happen? Can a place be inhabited that way? Yeah, the Church recognizes four different types of extraordinary demonic activity, and that would have to be infestation, so the presence of evil in a location or associated with an object, obviously demonic possession, which we've been talking about. There can be demonic vexation, physical attacks, and then demonic obsession, which are mental attacks. My experience is that, you know, true cases of demonic possession are extremely rare. I mean, maybe one out of every 5,000 cases, if you will, because even in the 13 years I've done this ministry now, I would say that I've only dealt with about five people where it was a genuine case of demonic possession. Either people were dealing with mental or medical issues, or it was the presence of the demonic activity that has to do with infestation, vexation, and obsession. And obviously, evil spirits don't live in a location like you and I do. They don't have an address. So if they are present in a location, then somebody must have been involved in something that would have been causing the evil to to be present there. For example, I'm a lot of people that on these ghost hunting shows and whatnot, and I've talked to many people in that field, it's not that the spirits are living in that location where they're going into, you know, the old mental hospital or prison. Mm. It's the very things that they're doing in that location that are drawing the attention of the spirits then that are manifesting there. So, so once again, so much of my thinking about this is probably driven by popular culture, although I did do a lot of scholarly reading about this at a couple of different times in my life. But I, I think when you say the things that people are doing, you mean people are doing things that are spiritual experimentation, uh, messing around with Ouija boards. Um, some people even think that modern practices like yoga might open the door up. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about, things that people are doing? Yes, absolutely, because that would be in sitting down and talking with somebody, trying to determine that if evil is present, what was the entry point? And then even the uh, the Vatican course on exorcism that you referenced at the beginning of the show, they put out a series of questions that the exorcist would ask the person trying to come to a determination of where the entry point of evil might have been. 
in the things you suggest, you know, ties to the occult practices that are mentioned in the book of, of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament about not practicing magic or witchcraft and seeing psychics and mediums and all those types of things that people do, that those could be ways that one could open up an entry point for evil into their life. Um, you're listening to uh, two guests here talk to us about uh, the modern understanding of uh, possession uh, and exorcism. Dr. Francis Young, a historian whose um, relevant book uh, is A History of Exorcism in Catholic Christianity, uh, and uh, Father Vince Lampert, a pastor of St. Malachy Parish in Brownsburg, Indiana, and, who, and also the priest and official exorcist of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with more of these two guests. Towards the end of the show, you'll also be meeting a clinician one of the people who has to come in and say, no, this is not possession, this is mental illness, or the other way around. All right, we're back. We're talking about exorcism with uh, Dr. Francis Young, um, wh- whose books include A History of Exorcism in Catholic Christianity, and Father Vince Lampert, who is a priest and official exorcist for the Archdiocese uh, of Indianapolis. Um, uh, you know, I, I sort of hinted at this at the beginning of the show, but I think we should uh, talk about the, the recrudescence uh, of this, particularly in the 21st century. Um, uh, Father Vince, I'll start over with you and, and then go uh, to Dr. Young. But, um, for example, uh, I, my understanding is a decade or so ago, around the time that you were becoming, uh, learning to be an exorcist, there were what, maybe about a dozen Catholic priests in the U.S. who were doing such things? Yes, that's true, yes. And where are we at now? So there are now about 85 stably appointed exorcists in the United States. And, and similarly, I mean, I was, I've been reading about a conference that was held, I think, in February in, in Sicily, where uh, one uh, of the priests who was there, another expert in exorcism, says he anticipates 500,000 requests in Italy for help of this kind. Now, as you've indicated, uh, an awful lot of these 500,000 uh, requests are going to be chaff as opposed to wheat. Uh, but again, this is, I, I, is this just sort of something, and if I look at Ireland, if I look at uh, a lot of other Catholic uh, countries, am I going to see basically the same thing, a kind of burgeoning interest in or desire for this? I think there is a growing desire for exorcism, and it may be that people don't really need an exorcism, but there is a mystique around that. You know, most people can have their problems resolved by just using the uh, the sacramental life of the church. Even Father Gabriel Amorth, the former chief exorcist in Rome, who uh, passed away in 2016, he said the best place to begin with somebody who believes they're up against the forces of evil is for that person just to make a good confession. You know, go back to church, spend time in praying. But it does seem a lot of people just don't find that very exciting. But having an exorcism... I don't know, for whatever reason, seems to excite people on some level. People might even just look at the ordinary events of living out their their life of faith as not very dramatic, which is why I think there is a greater fascination with exorcism. So even the priest there in Sicily, he may say 500,000, but it's not that 500,000 people need an exorcist or to have an exorcism performed on them. It may be they just need some good spiritual counseling or guidance in their lives. Um, Dr. Francis Young, I'm sure this resonates uh, with you to a certain degree, too, that we 
as a civilization now uh, are used to a lot of bells and whistles. Uh, we have a lot of sources uh, of excitement, uh, and we also have a lot of popular culture depictions uh, of exorcisms. So uh, it, it does make sense what Father Vince is saying, what, which is that people don't want anything as routine or as boring uh, as um, regular attendance at mass, uh, regular confession, right? They, they want what they've seen in the movies. Yes. And I think when you look at the way in which the rite was revised in 1998, in fact, um, the, the, the old rite, the old rite of 1614, was what could be described as imperative exorcism. So in other words, it was uh, very much the, the priest giving commands to Satan to depart, the kind of thing that, that you see in, in the exorcist movie. But actually what the 1999 rite does uh, well, 98 published in 99 is that it, um, it it does include that material as optional but the the mainstream right in there is actually what what could be described as deprecatory so it's actually as uh, as as uh, uh, your your other guest has said it's a uh, a prayer directed to god for somebody to be delivered from evil so i think yes for many people who go through that process they may be surprised or even disappointed that it's not what they've seen in the movies but I think the reason why the, the church decided that those old imperative exorcisms, adjurations, I suppose they might be described as, the, the reason why they were left in was largely because of the developing world. Uh, and there are many parts of the world where many Catholics are first generation Catholics or, or they, have, they have converted from forms of animism. And the, the reality of evil spirits is, is very present for them. And therefore, to, to, to disallow them from using imperative language, the general feeling was in the Vatican that, that that would be unfair. But it's down to individual bishops conferences in individual countries how they apply that right. And so it would be in, in America, it would be the, the, the U.S. bishops conference would decide what rights from that book exorcists should be using in preference to others. Um, Father Vince, when the history of this particular moment is written by uh, Dr. Francis Young or by some scholar who follows in his footsteps, one of the people that they'll be writing about a lot, I think, is Pope Francis. I alluded to this at the top of the show, but uh, Pope Francis has spoken out uh, about exorcism uh, and about um, demonic manifestations in a way that previous recent popes, anyway, have not. Did, did that surprise you when he actually said very publicly that he thought uh, priests hearing confessions should be prepared to seek out the assistance uh, of an exorcist if that seemed appropriate? Yeah, I, don't, I would say that his responses have not surprised me when you, you look at the story of his life and, you know, coming from Argentina, that part of the world where spiritual realities, again, are pretty much part of the mainstream culture, whereas here in the United States, they're not mainstream, but he's coming from a place where that is mainstream. So he's speaking to something that was pretty much in the forefront of everyday life in Argentina and now he sees that within in Italy. You know, in Italy there are 300 stably appointed exorcists. Poland has 300 stably appointed exorcists. And it, again, it isn't that there's a greater sense of demonic activity in, in those parts of the world. But again, those parts of the world readily accept the reality of, you know, spiritual entities, if you will. So he's responding to what he believes to be 
a genuine need of the faith lives of the people. Does it help you? I mean, I, to whatever, I don't know how much of an uphill fight this is for you in the U.S. I mean, uh, there, are, there are, I'm sure, as you said, there are priests who probably don't believe what you believe about this. Uh, there are probably bishops who don't believe what you believe about this. Does it, is it sort of like having the wind at your back, having a pope who's willing to talk publicly about this? Yes, because obviously then he's bringing this whole discussion into the forefront and really, that's that's healthy for the church to sit down and dialogue and have conversations about the whole topic of evil. Because a lot of people believe that perhaps evil is nothing more than humanity's inhumane treatment of one another. But then the church is pointing out that evil is personified in what we would call the devil or these other fallen angels. Um. Dr. Francis Young, you know, I was actually a newspaper religion writer in the late 70s. And my sense when I looked into this was that the Roman Catholic Church was not particularly interested in talking to me about it. I couldn't tell how much of it was going on. But uh, if it was going on, they didn't want to talk about it. Oddly enough, here in Connecticut, there were two Episcopal priests uh, who were doing quite a bit of it and were more forthcoming uh, about it. Uh, I would imagine for you and your research, I mean, you can't use the freedom of information law to find out what the Roman Catholic Church is doing with exorcism or about exorcism. And I would also imagine that they're walking kind of a line in a way, particularly now with Pope Francis, they want people to know that this stuff is out there and that there's help for people who think they're encountering a demonic activity. On the other hand, maybe it's a, something that they would rather not share everything they do. Uh, I, I don't know. What did you find as a historian trying to get access to information about all this? It's very challenging. Um, and as a historian, you're heavily reliant on documentary sources. Um, obviously, there's a lot of documentary sources going back to the Middle Ages, to the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. But once you get into modern times, there's only a few cases of exorcism that are uh, extensively documented. And the only reason that they are is that they became the subject of, of legal proceedings. Um, we have the, the case on which the exorcist, the, the book and the film, are loosely based, uh, which is the case of a boy called, called R, sometimes called Robbie. Um, and that in the book and the film is, is changed into a, a, a girl. Um, and there's another notorious case from Bavaria in Germany, uh, the case of Anneliese Michel, which um, was heavily documented because it became the subject of a uh, essentially a homicide investigation that the, the priests involved were accused of having either directly caused or contributed to the death um, of this young woman. Uh, so there are a few cases that are extensively documented in the public domain. Um, I did uh, speak to the, the, the leading exorcist in the UK uh, when writing the book, uh, Father Jeremy Davies. Um, his approach was, which I think is the approach that officially uh, is supposed to be adopted by all exorcists, that he will speak in general terms about what he does, uh, but he won't uh, describe individual cases, even anonymized, um, so even without giving the names uh, of the people involved. Clearly, it would be unethical, and also it would be forbidden for, for, for exorcist priests to describe uh, what happens and give personal details of people. It would be under the same level of confidentiality as the seal of the confessional, um, such matters. Um, so, yes, it is, it is challenging to research. And in the main, what I've looked into is general trends uh, rather than actually trying to dig down and uncover confidential information, as it were.
Um, Father Vince, um, imagine that I am somebody who uh, thinks I've got a problem of this kind or a family member has a problem of this kind. Uh, I approach you or some other representative of the church. And ultimately, the determination that you make is that, no, this is one of the thousands and thousands and thousands of cases of people thinking this is happening, but it's not really happening. I have some other options after that, right? There are uh, various groups of, of people who will offer to do exorcisms for me, not through the Roman Catholic Church. There's also an in, in international association uh, of Catholic uh, exorcists who are not all Roman Catholics. I was on their website today, though. One of the things they say on that website is that they sometimes take cases that have been turned down by the, the church uh, at large. Um, what what are your thoughts about this? Uh, people who, if you say no and somebody goes to look for somebody else, what are the risks? Yeah, well, everybody has free will, so people can choose to do what they will. I mean, when people come to me, I can only tell them what I believe to be true based on my own training, my knowledge, my understanding. And I can tell you there's been many cases over the years where people don't like when I say to them that they're not possessed. And they'll say, well, if you can't help me, then I'm going to go find somebody who will. And there's a lot of other groups out there, as you say, or individuals. I mean, I would even say there seems to be a growing trend for professional exorcists that people can turn to. I've, I've seen examples of that, whether recent accounts of folks in France or in Hollywood, where they're claiming to uh, perform exorcisms on people who are dealing with the demonic. Certainly the church can't control, nor does the church desire to control what people do. We can only tell people what we believe to be true, and what they do with that, then it's up to them. Um, I want to thank both of you for spending some time uh, talking to me uh, about this. Uh, Dr. Francis Young is a historian. Uh, his books include A History of Exorcism in Catholic Christianity. Father Vince Lampert, pastor of St. Malachi in Brownsburg, uh, Indiana, and official exorcist for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Uh, there are clinicians who get called in to make exactly the kind of discernment that we were just talking about. You're going to meet one of them. Crossing, call the priest. Say a prayer, bring Constantinism. Holy war inside, I need an exorcism to set my soul free. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea, with help from me, Kion Wolf, and our intern, Julius Brown. The part of Bill Curry was played by Via Farmega and Patrick Wilson. On tomorrow's show, our nose is live from New Haven. And now, back to Colin. So we're still talking about exorcism, but uh, with a different guest now. Uh, joining us is Dr. Richard Gallagher, board-certified psychiatrist, as well as professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College, lecturer at Columbia University, and the author of the upcoming book, Demonic Foes, a Psychiatrist Investigates Demonic Possession in Modern America. Um, so first of all, Dr. Gallagher, welcome to our conversation. Well, thank you. So you're sort of straddling two different worlds here. You're straddling the world uh, of clinical psychiatry uh, and the world of people who who do seek assistance with what they believe to be demonic possession or, or demonic invasion of some other kind. Um, and, and so under what circumstances will you be summoned to make a, a discernment between the two? 
Well, what I usually do is get contacted by some clergy. Uh, uh, I am Catholic myself, so a lot of times it's it's Catholic clergy from really from all over the country. Um, but it it's often uh, Protestant ministers, and and I've also been contacted by uh, rabbis, by imams. Uh, as, as the professor had emphasized at the beginning of your show, uh, possession and exorcisms is really a cross-cultural thing uh, found in, in, in virtually every religion. And, and of course, anthropologists have uh, shown evidence of it uh, uh, through a lot of uh, more primitive cultures as well. So uh, the way I usually get involved is I'll, I'll hear from a clergy person and he will, he or she will want to send me uh, a case that they want me to evaluate. Um, the fact that you are doing these kinds of evaluate, evaluations, making those kinds of discernments, I, I take it that that means that a case that you are prepared to say, uh, in some instances, nope, this isn't some kind of clinical problem. It's not epilepsy. It's not mental illness. Uh, there's no uh, neuropsychic basis for, for this. This is something else. This is something of what we might call a supernatural nature. Is is that a fair statement? No, absolutely. Uh I mean, technically, officially, I don't make spiritual diagnoses. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give somebody an official opinion that they're possessed. But I, I do, I do see such cases. Uh, the vast majority, and, and I will, you know, I certainly have my opinion about it, and I'll, I'll express that opinion. Uh, certainly, in most cases, people will think they are possessed or not. Uh, again, as as uh, Father Lampert and the professor emphasized, uh, uh, the vast majority of people who think they are possessed or even demonically attacked in some lesser way um, have have a medical or a mental problem, um, and that's that's the role that I play. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, look, I, I'm a host on public radio, uh, and we do look into these kinds of questions, but there's a large, um, uh, almost ferociously skeptical public radio audience. I know when this show is over and I go check my emails and my social media, there are going to be people saying, why are you putting this stuff on the air? What are you? This isn't real. This is uh, uh, folklore and, and magic. Uh, the, uh, public radio is no place for this kind of thing. You're in con- regularly in contact with a pretty highly scientific community, whether you're at a New York Medical College or Columbia University. What do your colleagues say to you? Do you get into conversations with them uh, about the fact that, yeah, occasionally you feel as though you're, you're seeing something that isn't easily explainable by science and that you think is demonic activity? Yeah, sure. I do at times. Um, but, you know, Americans by and large, uh, I mean, two things. Uh, Americans, by and large, are a pretty tolerant group, and, you know, we live in a religiously pluralistic uh, culture, so people have freedom of religion, and people have freedom of expression, and people, you know, especially maybe in my profession, a fair amount may disagree with me, but, uh, you know, they they kind of respect that this is, this is Gallagher's views, you know. Uh, and I think a lot of people have a slight misimpression that even in this country, I'm in, I, I'm, I'm in some kind of extreme minority, or this is a fringe belief. It's not a fringe belief. The majority of Americans, by far, in, in polls, believe in the devil. 
And I remember reading one one survey, I think it was a Gallup survey, where the majority of Americans actually believe demons can, uh, you know, affect or attack people. So I'm, I'm, I tell people often, this is hardly as fringe a belief as you think. Now, I'm very aware of the of the let's say uh, critics of of this field, and of course they have a, they have a right to their their view. Um, you know, I, I suggest to those people sometimes that they talk to uh, people like Father Lampert, among others, who uh, have had uh, experience in this field, and uh, they may find that uh, uh, their views are a little narrow. Um, maybe it's helpful to just hear a little bit about uh, the kind of case that you might handle. Uh, there's one uh, that you've written about, uh, uh, a patient that you call Julia. Tell us about Julia. Yeah, and listen, and I do respect what the uh, professor said about the, the ethics of, of speaking out in too much detail. So whenever I discuss a case like the woman uh, I call Julia, and that's a pseudonym, um, I'm, I'm always careful to not give her name, not give any identifying information, et cetera, et cetera. And, and anybody I, I also talk about as a particular case, uh, you know, they, they've generally given me permission to talk about. Uh, Julia was a uh, very unusual case. Uh, I was uh, introduced to her by uh, a couple of priests. And when I started out this work, there were very few priests, exorcists in the United States, and therefore I got to see an awful lot of cases because uh, uh, if if you're confined to one particular uh, region or diocese, you're not going to see a lot of cases. But I would I would see cases literally all over the country, and one of the more dramatic cases that I was ever introduced uh, to was this woman I'm calling Julia. And she was uh, an avowed priestess of a satanic cult. Um, in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of hysteria in this country about Satanists kidnapping people. And it was the McMartin case in Los Angeles where the uh, couple was accused of abusing uh, children and was eventually cleared by the uh, legal system. So I was also well aware at the time um of the false reports of Satanism and that sort of thing. But this woman appeared to be the, the real deal, and uh, she was unequivocally possessed. She went through uh, a series of exorcisms. Uh, I did not see her exorcisms, although I've been to many exorcisms in, in her life, but, you know, I got reports from the people who went and from the exorcist, and, for instance, uh, she had all the classic criteria uh, such as speaking in foreign languages, and uh, she even levitated uh, during one of the exorcisms, I was told, by about eight people. Um, now, she never really fully cooperated, and as your other guests have, have emphasized, the cooperation and the wish to be delivered and turn away from, in her case, uh, you know, an evil lifestyle of, of a Satanist is a paramount part of why a person gets delivered. It's not just some magic incantation. 
so in any case, uh, she never really fully cooperated, and she was not delivered. But it was a it was a very flamboyant case. Well, we should mention there was one instance where uh, you encountered her, uh, and she greeted you with the question, "How did you like those cats?" Uh, and in fact, the night before, in your bedroom with your wife, your two cats had really kind of gone crazy in the middle of the night. That must have been a rather chilling moment to have her talk about that, uh, as if she somehow or other knew what had happened. Yeah, it was creepy. Uh, Our cats went berserk in the middle of the night, and I had never met her before. She was introduced to me the next day, and she said, well, Dr. Gallagher, how did you you like those cats uh, last night? Um, Now, again... You know, when when certainly in the in the more mainstream churches in the Catholic Church, there are very strict criteria to uh, assess whether someone is possessed, and this is why, in addition to ruling out different mental illnesses, there are psychotic patients who think they're possessed. There are people with personality disorders or very suggestible or histrionic people who think they're possessed. That's in my way, uh, that's in, in many respects, my job is to, you know, rule yeah. that out and, and, and let, the, let the individual know these are not patients of mine. None of these people are patients of mine. Right. But, you know, uh, we are unfortunately going to have to stop there, Dr. Gallagher. People who want to know more, I guess, are going to have to wait for your book, Demonic Foes, A Psychiatrist Investigates Demonic Possession in Modern America. Thanks to uh, all of you for listening. I'm going to go read my emails. I already know what they say. (laughs) But thanks for listening, uh, and we'll be back tomorrow.